Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise. I'm excited to welcome Sean Leland, founder and CEO of Elevation Oncology. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sean. Thanks for having Pleasure to uh, be here today. I appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. Great. So to start off, Sean, would love to understand the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. I finished my PharmD training at Albany College of Pharmacy in 2008, and then I found myself entering into a pharmaceutical industry fellowship program with Bristol-Myers Squibb in Princeton, New Jersey. So I went through the fellowship program and my first soiree into a full-time position in industry was in the oncology medical affairs space, working with Eli Lilly. So in that role, I was placing preclinical and clinical research collaborations. And then I quickly got pulled into working in oncology search and evaluation with Eli Lilly, scouting assets around licensing and companies for mergers and acquisitions. So found myself reporting into the oncology leadership team at Eli Lilly, where I was providing technical due diligence assessments and making formal recommendations on licensing opportunities and M&A opportunities. So I did that for a period of four years. I then left Big Pharma to go to biotech. So I actually went back to medical affairs. I helped start up the medical affairs team at Ariad Pharmaceuticals. And then I went to head up business development for Argos Therapeutics. And then I've also served as head of business development for Veristem Oncology prior to forming Elevation in July of 2019. You know, this whole kind of idea and concept for forming Elevation is something that came to me when I was sitting in a scientific presentation at the European Society of Medical Oncology or ESMO meeting in Munich uh, in 2018. I was sitting in a scientific presentation that was given by Alex Drillin from Memorial Sloan Kettering on targeted therapies in lung cancer. And he had one slide in that presentation on a target I had never seen before called Neregulin-1 or NRG1 gene fusions. He described that target as being rare, present in 0.2 to 0.5% of solid tumors. The fact that it was a tumor agnostic target, they had identified it north of 10 different tumor types. And most importantly, he highlighted the fact that it was a true oncogenic driver and that it was predominantly mutually exclusive of other known targetable oncogenic drivers, highlighting that when it could be found via genomic testing, that it was the one and only thing driving tumor growth and proliferation and should be amenable to a monotherapy approach. So, you know, seeing the target, hearing the target, it immediately made me think of another target I had seen in the past that led to two FDA approved targeted therapies which were larotractinib and entractinib targeting entract fusions. So I felt like these NRG1 gene fusions were like the next entract tumor agnostic-like target. And then Alex described the biology as well as referenced a case study with the HER3 monoclonal antibody approach, you know, showing a very deep and durable response in a patient with a NRG1 gene fusion. So really highlighted the fact that these NRG1 gene fusions were druggable using a HER3 monoclonal antibody approach. And I just, I thought to myself, God, there's so many companies that have developed HER3 monoclonal antibodies, you know, that were quote unquote deemed to be failed assets that you could probably go out and license or acquire one of these for cheap and then repurpose it for this genomically defined patient population with NRG1 gene fusions. And if you could find the right asset, a phase two ready asset, you could probably jump right into a phase two tumor agnostic study 
enrolling solid tumors with NRG1 gene fusions and leverage that for an accelerated approval pathway. I came back from ESMO. I spoke with a bunch of advisors about the idea and concept. And you know, I think people were very positive about this idea working. They're just like, you got to figure out how you're going to find the patients given the rarity of this patient population. You know, so that led me to pull all the literature. I developed a pitch deck. I started pitching this idea to investors. But the other component of this was, you know, not only was it great to pitch this idea to investors, but I was pitching a concept, right? I didn't have a molecule or an asset going against HER3 to drug these patients. So in parallel to that, you know, one of the most interesting aspects of, you know, this entrepreneurial pathway was, you know, also trying to find a HER3 monoclonal antibody. So I was running due diligence on a variety of HER3 monoclonal antibodies in parallel to also talking with investors to fund this idea and concept. And, you know, that led, you know, on July 12th of 2019, we closed the Series A financing that morning of 32 and a half million, uh, led by Steve Elms and team at Aceland Capital. And then that afternoon, we closed an asset purchase agreement with Merrimack Pharmaceuticals to acquire Cerebantamab, which is a potential best-in-class HER3 monoclonal antibody that we are now leveraging for patients with NRG1 gene fusions. Thanks for walking us through that entrepreneurial journey, Sean. Going back to the founding days of Elevation, and this is more so for the budding entrepreneurs that are listening, how did you come about with deciding when you wanted to go all in as it relates to Elevation Oncology? Was this a side hustle for a little bit, or did you just decide to you know, quit the day job and go all in? This was a side hustle for, you know, basically from November of 2018 to July of 2019. So I only decided to go all in once I knew the money was in the bank and that we were able to close the asset purchase agreement to acquire Cerebantamab. You know, I essentially was speaking with investors outside of kind of my day job. So I, I found myself, you know, kind of during the day going into the office. And then in the evening, I was going to meet with you know, a variety of potential investors and then doing Zoom teams meetings, et cetera, to speak with investors. And then, you know, obviously running the diligence, you know, outside of my day job. Must not have been a stressful time at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about you know, how you think about genetic testing and the value of genetic testing and how it relates to the work that you're doing at Elevation Oncology. So, I mean, I think genetic testing is the key to what we do at Elevation is the key to really what, you know, any precision oncology company does. I mean, it's, it's really all about, you know, making those genomic testing results therapeutically actionable. I mean, I think we've made tremendous strides in progress in tumor types and indications like lung cancer, where 50 to up to 90% of patients, you know, get tested um, and get next generation sequencing to understand the makeup of their cancer. The reality is, is lung cancer only makes up about 10% of all cancers. So there's 90 plus percent of cancers that are out there where, you know, the rate of genomic testing and sequencing is only about 15 to 20%. So we still have a long way to go. And, you know, I think the genomic testing and genomic sequencing allows you a variety of different things and a potential significant advantages when it comes to understanding how aggressive your cancer is. So it adds prognostic value in terms of understanding whether you have a slow growing cancer or a you know, rapidly growing cancer. It also adds significant therapeutic value because unless you have genomic sequencing, you're getting standard of care chemo, chemotherapy, or immunotherapy, which not only is going to kill cancer cells, 
but it's also going to kill normal healthy cells. And that's where we see toxicity. And the beauty here of genomic sequencing is if you have your tumor sequenced, you have an ability to understand what is driving tumor growth and proliferation of your tumor. And then you have the ability to pair a targeted therapy product, which is you know more specific to your cancer cells and what's driving the growth of your cancer. So it tends to have a more favorable safety profile in comparison to what you tend to see with standard of care chemo, chemo IO or IO alone. And so you raised some venture financing, decided to take the company public. Walk us through you know, that decision of planning to take the company public and also where you are now from a pipeline perspective. Yeah, great question. So, I mean, we raised the initial Series A financing of $32.5 million. We then followed that up with a Series B crossover round that was closed in, in November of 2020. And then the scenario was that the market was extremely hot, right? There was a lot of finance out there and it was the right time. You know, we had, you know, moved into a phase two study with potential registrational intent. You know, we were evaluating a variety of different opportunities, strategic partnerships, and other ways to go about expanding the pipeline. So we felt like it was the appropriate time to take elevation from being a private company into being a publicly traded company. So, you know, it's really the growth of the company that was driving this transition from being private into being a publicly traded company. So, you know, right after we closed the Series B financing, you know, we initiated the IPO financing process. You know, we ended up selecting banking syndicate in the March 2021 timeframe. And we went through the filing process in a very expedited manner. And, you know, we found a very favorable window to take the company public, you know, at the end of June of 2021. And we did that, you know, on the backside of, you know, strategic collaboration that we formed with Keras Life Sciences around identification of oncogenic fusion and driver mutation targets, and a corresponding target identification and drug discovery initiative. So, it was really the formation of that partnership that also, you know, accelerated and triggered the company's decision to go public, you know, with our initial signs of pipeline expansion. And on the topic of partnership, Sean, you've been on the BD side for quite some time. Curious to hear your thoughts on how the partnership landscape has changed over the last decade, perhaps, and the value that you see in partnerships now and in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the partnership landscape has, you know, changed quite a bit, right? I mean, I think, you know, traditionally, you know, we were in a world where like partnerships were really focused on predominantly big pharma companies doing deals. Those were the ones that really kind of caught everyone's attention. I feel like we are now, you know, living in a world where every company at every stage is doing all different types of partnerships. And it's not just about licensing and mergers and acquisitions. I think, you know, partnerships have gotten much more creative. I mean, yes, do we still see the traditional licensing and M&A deals? Yeah, of course. But I mean, I think people have gotten a lot more creative in terms of how they think about partnerships. And, you know, I think what I see and what I think about when we put partnerships in place is, you know, we're looking to put partnerships in place where it's a win-win for both companies. I feel like sometimes in partnerships, it tends to be a win for one company and another company is not in the most favorable position. And that's why they have to do the partnerships. They're looking to raise, you know, some non-dilutive capital or something along those lines. You know, so I think, you know, for me, leading business development efforts, 
you know, we really focus on win-win partnerships where, you know, both sides, you know, have the ability to generate significant value from those types of collaborations. I think that's evident in our strategic collaboration that we put in place with Keras Life Sciences. It's also evident in every other type of business deal or transaction that we put in place. And speaking on that partnership that you just described, you have a unique approach to how to run clinical trials, particularly in a rare patient population. Talk to us about why you thought that was an important partnership for you, how it could accelerate clinical development activities for you, and also just lessons learned perhaps more broadly for the life sciences ecosystem. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, we we knew going in, you know, with our first clinical development path that we decided to pursue being NRG1 gene fusion patients, we knew it was going to be a major challenge to find these patients, given the fact that they represent, you know, 0.2 to 0.5% across solid tumors or an estimated U.S. incidence of around 3,200 patients per year. So, you know, we knew this was a needle in a haystack. So, I mean, you know, we first started out, you know, utilizing kind of the traditional CRO-based model where we strategically worked collaboratively with, you know, our, our CRO partner, which in this case is MedPace. You know, we worked collaboratively with them to figure out, you know, what sites were testing for NRG1 fusions, what testing modality they were using, you know, was it DNA-based, was it RNA-based NGS testing? And then we also gained an understanding of how many NRG1 fusion patients they had seen over the past six to 12 months. So, you know, we took a very strategic approach, even with utilizing the traditional CRO-based model for clinical trials. And, you know, as we were working on the study startup for the phase two Crestone study, we were also in parallel having discussions and dialogues with diagnostic companies. And we knew these diagnostic companies were key, but I don't think we realized going into those discussions how key they would be for operationalizing the phase two Crestone study. The initial premise of those dialogues was focused on identification of a companion diagnostic partner But what we found out is that, you know, there were select diagnostic partners that had established clinical trial networks that were using their next generation sequencing or NGS testing panels. And what we found and discovered was that the vast majority of those NGS testing panels had the ability to pick up these NRG1 gene fusion patients. And it allowed us to put in place a number of diagnostic partnerships. Um, we currently have nine diagnostic partnerships in place. And, you know, some of those diagnostic partnerships, three of them have the ability to leverage these just-in-time clinical trial models. And that gives us access to, you know, 400 plus clinical trial sites across the U.S. We carry no site overhead for those clinical trial sites. We only carry site overhead if and when we activate a site. And we only activate a site if and when they identify a patient with an NRG1 gene fusion. So in advance, we've pre-negotiated contract budget studies approved through a central IRB, and we can activate these sites in 14 days or less if they find a patient that qualifies for the clinical trial. One of the biggest challenges with running a clinical trial in a rare genomically defined patient population is you tend to open up a ton of clinical trial sites, you tend to carry a ton of site overhead, and those sites, the vast majority of those sites don't even find a single patient. So you're paying those sites to not even enroll a patient. The beauty of this operational model and the just-in-time model is you don't pay the sites until they find a patient and that patient enrolls on the clinical trial. So 
It's a very capital efficient and time efficient model, in particular when you're running a clinical trial and a rare genomically defined patient population. To that point, in terms of creative approaches to solving old problems, there's been reports that executives in our sector feel that the pandemic has highlighted longstanding operational inefficiencies in drug development and perhaps accelerated digital innovation in the life sciences sector by at least five years. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, are there some silver linings of the pandemic that you hope are here to stay? And if so, what are some of those? Yeah, I mean, I think in particular, even just the virtual working environment, I actually think is a a huge positive. It used to be taboo to say that like, oh, I'm going to work from home today. I don't need to come to the office, right? Everyone needed to be in the office. You needed to be based where the company was based. And, you know, that really limited people to predominantly, at least in the pharma biotech sector, being based in Boston or San Francisco predominantly. I think, you know, in the world that we live in, and I've actually always personally lived in this world. I mean, I've worked virtually for every company that I've worked for to date, including even big pharmaceutical companies. Yes, did I travel into most of these companies, you know, kind of on an every other week basis and for key meetings? Yes. But I've always kind of worked in this flexible working environment, which just allows for a tremendous amount more productivity. And so I think that is honestly like one of the biggest key things that is clearly here to stay, right? People are moving away from the model where you're carrying a ton of GNA overhead to operate a facility and have a massive office. People are selling off office space left and right. They're allowing people to work from home. And I think people are starting to see that bear significant fruit where people are much more productive. They honestly have a much better work-life balance because you don't necessarily feel like you have to work nine to five or eight to six. Like you can get your work done. You can make time to go and do something with your kids. You can make sure that you're home for dinner every night. It just, I think it provides a much more favorable work environment. So that's something that I feel like is here to stay. And I think one of the huge positives in the pandemic, and I think, you know, what does that mean for workforce planning? What does that mean for hiring, et cetera? You know, if you're a company based in Boston or San Francisco, you're probably not limiting yourself to just that talent pool, right? The nice thing is, is you have the ability now where you're allowing the flexibility of virtual working to attract talent from everywhere. So I actually think it moves us forward as an industry because I think there's a lot more talent that's being accessed that maybe wasn't accessed before in the past when it was a world where you had to be where the company was. And Sean, since you're uh, an old pro as it relates to remote work compared to many of us, what are some of the lessons you can share as it relates to forming a cohesive, highly productive culture? What are things that you have implemented at Elevation that you think other companies could benefit from given the remote work that we now are doing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest challenge, honestly, is in a virtual environment, it's like, you know, especially when you're growing very quickly, it's like, how do you maintain that culture that we had in place when we were two people or when we were eight people? And, you know, we've now grown to a company that's 23 people and that's still small. But, you know, you you can see that as the company grows, you know, maintaining that culture is a very, very key piece. 
You know, I think what we've done kind of throughout that, and I think a big part of maintaining culture, especially like in the early days is hiring, right? I mean, like the people that you end up hiring, you know, literally create the culture. So for us, it was very clear that Elevation was focused on kind of being this work hard, play hard environment. And, you know, we were looking to hire people that kind of shared that same mentality. We were looking to hire people that wanted to be a part of a virtual company, virtual working environment, people that were going to put in long hours to advance the goals of the company, but also knew and appreciated the value of being able to take time off, spend time with family, travel, like take a vacation is kind of, I feel like a very central part of, you know, the ethos and the culture that we've created at Elevation. I think the other piece of this is as we are growing in size, I think we've realized, you know, especially kind of where we are today with COVID, you know, as long as people are comfortable, um, as long as people are vaccinated, there's this opportunity to get together in, in person. You know, I think the one thing that people end up missing in a virtual working environment is the water cooler talk, right? So it's like, how do you create that? So we've kind of moved to this model of quarterly team meetings, entire company quarterly team meetings. So we have no brick and mortar corporate office. You know, we have a travel budget and we have a travel budget that allows people to get together, do in-person team meetings. We do quarterly management team meetings. And then we also allow the flexibility, you know, on a project by project basis as groups feel the need to meet in person. You know, they've kind of done everything they could do from a virtual standpoint, or even if they haven't done a whole lot of work from a virtual standpoint, and they're like, this is definitely like an in-person project. You know, we can get this completed within two to three days. We're just going to do a quick offsite. We're going to finish up the project and we're going to get it done. Those are the things that we put in place to kind of maintain the culture in this virtual working environment to make sure that, you know, there is a collaborative effort to make sure that, you know, it's not just work and to make sure that people have the ability to get to know each other on a personal level, which allows us to, I think, only accelerate the culture and the relationships that exist within the team at Elevation. Great insights there, Sean. Given all of your experience across big pharma, early stage biotechs, to now founding your own company, what's one piece of advice that you would provide your younger self? So, I mean, I think the biggest piece of advice that I would provide my younger self is just to have confidence in yourself and don't let age limit your confidence, right? You know, I think anyone can be an entrepreneur at, at any time in their life, and it takes confidence and it takes courage. It is not an easy leap to make. You know, everyone I feel like always likes a safe environment and being an entrepreneur is a very unsafe environment to be in. It's very rewarding though, if you take that risk. You know, I think back to forming Elevation, you know, when I was 35 years old, I think back in my career to coming across a a very similar situation that was the light bulb that went off that led to forming Elevation that I saw when I was 27 years old. And I remember being at the company I was working for at the time, pitching this idea. And the pushback was, oh, this is a rare genomically defined patient population. The commercial opportunity is not attractive enough for us. 
And, you know, at, at that time, I just, I did not have the confidence. I didn't have the courage to be an entrepreneur. And I saw someone else take that idea and turn it into something unbelievably prolific and a very, very successful company. And eight years later, when I came across and saw the opportunity to target NRG1 gene fusions, that same light bulb, that same feeling went off, but I had accomplished much more in my career. I had much more confidence that I had the ability to go about starting a company and I knew what it took to build and get there. And, you know, I had the great support of advisors. So, I mean, I think the other key piece and advice I would give you is it's not the easiest to network in the world of COVID-19, but I, I would do whatever you can to network build as many relationships as you can, because, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, you will never be able to do it by yourself. You can carry a company quite a long ways by yourself, but you need help. You need advice. You need assistance. So building a strong network of colleagues, advisors, others that have done this before will be key to your success in particular as a first-time entrepreneur. Well, Sean, with that salient advice, thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing your journey and the important work that you and your colleagues at Elevation Oncology are pursuing. Thanks, Rahul, for having me on the show today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.